welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. So, my name's Steve D. I'm from uh, Sacramento, California. Been in, I'm sexually sober in SA since April 20th, 1995. I uh, recently celebrated 26 years. I'm very grateful for that. I, there's a custom in our group to send around gift cards. And, uh, you know, I, I was really touched to tears by the, the messages from the fellowship. And I'm eternally, eternally grateful for this, this fellowship and all that it's given me. Um, so my uh, topic today that I came up with uh, was... Um, Finding the real connection in the desperation. And I, uh, I feel like there is this gift of desperation through my recovery uh, that I can trace back to you know, over, over 26 years ago. And I wanted to talk about that, but really the, the essence of trying to find God in the desperation and the pain. In our 12 and 12, it says pain is the touchstone of all spiritual progress. And it goes on to say how, how heartily we, we AAs can agree in that we had to know the pain of drunkenness before we could gain sobriety. We had to know the pain of emotional turbulence before we could know serenity. I've definitely found that to be in my, the case in my, in my journey. And as I look at this, this word desperation, you know, it really comes from a Latin root that means the absence of hope. And, and that, uh, you know, like in my journey, that's taken what I would call three forms. One is, you know, the, the desperation, the unconscious desperation before I came into the program, uh, before I was even faced with the, with the need to get sober. And it really took the form of desperate acts, right? You know, the, the lack of hope, that the internal unconscious inability to see that life, see life on life's terms, to experience the, the, the eternal goodness of life led me to do things that, uh, you know, were, were acts of desperation, uh, they were what I would call violence towards myself and others, uh, not out, outward violence in particular, but there was always a sense of anger and, and a fear that, that drove my life. And I feel like uh, looking back on that, you know, looking back on some of the incidents, in particular, how how serious that was, you know, that I was 
you know, I started out like many, uh, many of us, I think, with uh, masturbation and the pornography, but it led to places where I were beyond where I've heard most other people go. I, I got into prostitution and, and a, in a really heavy way. I was living in South America. I can remember one time uh, that really was an unconscious act of desperation. And that, uh, you know, I spent all night with a, with a prostitute and got drunk. And, you know, it was, it was a few days after my, my 26th birthday. And, uh, but I had spent my birthday alone. And there was a sense of desperation in that, that I was, I was abandoned again, yet again, and I was alone. And, and uh, I really didn't realize until that, that, until I looked back in time. But then, you know, I, I just ended up spending a night in this, this uh, really downtrodden hotel. And the next day after that, I, I almost killed myself in a car accident. And you know, I I look back at that and say, well, you know, I, I can see I can see the desperation that was underneath that. Now I couldn't see it at the time. It's this unconscious, it was this unconscious uh, desperation. But then there there was there was a, another aspect of desperation. You know, there were there were acts like that throughout my my acting out career. One another one was I got into uh, sadomasochistic sex and. Uh, you know, my my last acting out in that regard was in December of '94, and uh, I uh, I found myself in San Francisco uh, at, after acting out, tremendous guilt. You know, went onto the street uh, with face to a fight and uh, people throwing stuff at each other, and I just, you know, I, it was another act. Of all that was an act of desperation, and and I know that. The, the further I went down that path, the more, the more I needed in terms of stimulus the, and the more violent it became. And uh, I just know that this, it's no joke when, when it talks in our literature about this being a, a disease that can lead us to death. You know, it's not just a spiritual death. You know, there's, there's uh, I've seen it in our program uh, more than once where people have, have, uh, have taken their own lives or um, are because they've been too distracted by the, by the deep desperation that they, they end up losing their lives. I, yeah. So at the point of disclosure, uh, you know, in, in uh, early 95, that was another form of desperation. It was, you know, there was this growing consciousness of desperation over time. And I found myself uh, really looking at um, knowing or knowing that I, that I was out of time. I was out of time to practice this, this disease. And, and that came with the recognition of, of sitting down and writing a, a first step realizing how much, you know, and seeing the catharsis of that, you know, in the white book, it tells us, you know, that we, we don't, we don't take the first step, but the first step takes us. And I was, I was driven to tears in the, in the small meeting we had here in Sacramento uh, back at that time, a few people in the room and, you know, it was like a 60 page, 60 page first step. And I just was brought to tears, you know, it's the sense of, 
of how could I have done all this? You know, that was a desperation, you know, that, that, you know, I, I was out of time and I didn't, I didn't know what was in front of me. I didn't know that, that there could be any hope that I would, uh, I would be okay through this. And, and I remember in my, what my wife, uh, inadvertent on my part, uh, read my first step. And at that point, I didn't have any hope of our marriage surviving another, another form of desperation. So as, as time went on, I mean, I, that was when the real, the real emotional baggage comes to the surface, right? We get sober, we do our first step, maybe a little honeymoon there. But then for me, it was like, then I began to see all the fear and the, and the dread, it wasn't, you know, fear might is a, is a gentle word. It's more like terror, you know, terror of life itself. You know, and I just realized how much I, I felt like I did not have a place on the planet, you know, yet another form of desperation, all this kind of coming to light. I would call in, call, I would call this kind of the, 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 bringing to light of, of the desperation inside. And, and I would suggest this is a, this is a lifelong process, but so at that point, you know, I, 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 I did, you know, I got so much out of, of being in the fellowship and working the program. And, and I took it upon myself to give it, give myself to the simple program. I, I, I gave myself to, to working these steps as best I could, but yet even then I found myself in a place of lust uh, towards, towards a loved one, uh, you know, my daughter. And, uh, you know, it was after I'd done my first step, I kind of done my, done the second and third step, but I forgot about the words next, you know, that next we embark upon this, uh, on this uh, house cleaning effort. And I somehow missed that. And anyway, uh, that delay uh, didn't cause me to act out, but it did wake me up to the desperation. How desperate did one have to be to lust after their daughter? Anyway, time goes on. I'm working the steps and, uh, you know, this sense of uh, desperation kind of seems to dissipate over time with working the steps and, and finding that place of, of uh, peace inside and and uh, especially meditation. I've been a meditator since the beginning of sobriety, twice a day, every day. And that's, that's been a huge benefit to me, working the steps and moving through the desperation. But there is a, there's another part of, of desperation. And that's, it's, it's more subtle. It's more, uh, I would call it the, the quiet desperation. Quiet desperation of uh, several years of sobriety, and I think that's probably the the topic that really uh, needs to be explored uh, when we talk about desperation. You know, it's 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 really uh, it's really somewhat intractable. I can tell you that I was upwards of eight or nine years into sobriety when I, when I realized, and I, and I can so relate to the story that Bill W talks about that in which Bill Bill W talks about. Um, it's a, it's a story in language of the, of the heart called uh, state take step 11. 
And he explains how, you know, that with uh, multiple 20 plus years of sobriety, people would tell him how well he's doing and, you know, and, and, and yet inside he knew otherwise, you know, he wasn't doing so hot. He was still driven by these juvenile uh, impulses. And I could, I can so relate to that, you know, that we have this sobriety, this long-term sobriety, but, you know, there's still the reactivity, there was still the reactivity and anger would take me over. And, uh, you know, and, and I, and I continued to work the steps and do multiple four steps and uh, work with sponsees. And, but I, but I started to explore and be curious about these, these feelings that I had at the time I was seeing a spiritual advisor and, you know, he kept kind of pointing me to, you know, what does it feel like inside? You know, and I, I'm a guy that's run from my feelings like the plague, you know, I, I could, I'm reminded of that phrase in the big book. I mean, sorry, the 12 and 12 where it says, you know, we, we avoided pain, you know, and yet humility was the, was the healer of pain. And so I didn't have much humility when it came to pain, <laughs> did not want to face it. And uh, so I, it took me a while to, to realize that that was the way through this, this quiet desperation, this, this discomfort was the way past it was the way through it. And so I began to learn how to, how to feel, you know, uh, that's not an easy task. I learned how to ask myself, you know, what am I feeling inside right now? What am I, uh, what's going on with me? And, I, and the first part of this was really kind of going into when I would feel the lust, you know, I don't know about you, but when I would, when I would lust after a woman on the street or uh, I would, I would feel this in my chest, you know, it's almost like there was there were the hands in my chest and wanted to reach out and grab, you know, and I would say that prayer that was so helpful. God help me finding you what I'm looking for in this, but there was still that feeling, you know, that feeling that wasn't going away, you know, that feeling of, of uh, desperation, that desperate emptiness inside. And so as I began to just go into that feeling and explore it and feel it, you know, that's when I feel like I began to get at the cause of the addiction, just to begin to get at the cause and feel like I was uh, making some progress uh, in, in addressing this quiet desperation inside. And since then, that's become a, a way of life for me. Uh, and I'm still working on this getting in touch with my feelings, but I, I am uh, passing this on to people I work with, the guys I work with, and I am trying to carry, carry this message because I think it's so important for us to continue to grow, continue to grow. And, and the, the, again, language of the heart, uh, Bill W. in the 50s wrote an wrote a essay called Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier. And he got at it some of this, you know, what he came to was it was absolute dependence on God instead of dependence on circumstances or people to make us happy. And I've come to realize that that's kind of the essence of the issue, you know, that we, we grow up in this world 
and we were taught that somehow if we do this or do that, or like it says in the big book, we can, we can get happiness if we only manage well, you know, and that's the illusion, of course, you know, but there's a deep part of me inside that still believes that, you know, that believes that somebody behaves some way or another that, that I want in a way that they, I want them to behave, they will, they will make me happy and then I'll be okay, you know. And that's, you know, that's chasing after, that's like a dog chasing its tail. Uh, we can't find unconditional love outside. We can find unconditional love within ourselves. And that's, you know, that's the gift of the program, really, when it says in chapter four of the big book, you know, that, that great reality is within us, you know, that we, we can... Uh, we can begin to find God now. That's the only place we can find God now. But it's not easy to be in the now when we've got this emotional turmoil inside. So there's some, some tools and directions, I think, the, that the literature gives us. And, and one is in step eight, you know, that we extricate everything we can from past relationships. So what does that mean? It talks a little bit about, you know, how things in the past have changed our life dramatically. And this emotional turmoil has, has been developed that, that caused us to, to behave the way we do. I call it uh, emotional imprinting. You know, that we were imprinted by our parents. They were imprinted by their parents. It goes back generations. But there's this cultural conditioning that says you need to be somebody, you need to, you know, you need to have things arranged in a certain way, and then you can be happy. You know? and, and looking for unconditional love in all the wrong places and all the wrong ways. And so to face this emotional imprinting takes uh, takes what it says in the big book that we you know, we, we begin to extricate everything we can from past relationships. And this is a lifelong process. And so we, but we can't do it at a mental level. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the fallacy, I think. And that's, that's where we have to challenge our literature uh, to a certain extent. And I don't think it's, it's, a, it's something that uh, really is, is all that big a leap. As a matter of fact, in the white book, it talks about feelings uh, more than once, and it talks about feelings in the big book. It just doesn't talk about them in the way that we begin to go inside and begin to integrate and, uh, and, and, uh, and with our higher power be with these feelings that, uh, that I would call the emotional imprinting, that, that part of us that is driven to, to, uh, to drama, you know, I mean, to the fact that we look, the, the process of looking outside ourselves for unconditional love can only lead to drama because it's always trying to fix something out of our, outside of ourselves. And uh, it's the essence of the serenity prayer. You know, God grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things I, we can. I mean, I look at that courage to change the things that we can in the way of, you know, I, I often say the courage and the guts change the things we can because my my emotional imprinting uh, kind of resides in the guts 
And that's the thing about this, this whole emotional imprinting is that, that it gets embedded in the tissues. The, the body keeps the score. And so really the, the, the pointers in our literature were, where Roy Kay says, you know, I had to walk through my feelings. Where Roy Kay says, we had to uh, feel the healthy pain of self-awareness. You know, I, 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 I glossed over that the first time I read the white book, you know, which I read like my, my the day after I got it at a meeting. You know, that was such a fascinating book for me. Uh, but I, <laughs> I didn't really even see that until it was few years ago you know but it's there and 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 the big book you know i think these people knew at some level because of their deep desperation that they had to they had to feel this stuff you know they they that the mental part of this the mental uh the mental path does not does not get us to this integration or dismantling of this emotional imprinting that that keeps driving the train until we begin to turn and look inside and feel our way through it. So what, what are the tools for doing that? You know, one is that, um, for me, meditation is essential. And it's essential because I have to be able to slow down my mind to do that. Because when I began to, when I began to do this, you know, my mind would just bounce off. You know, I wouldn't, it wouldn't stay with me in this. You know, it would even though what what it was, I know it kind of sounds sounds weird, but you know it's it's kind of the essence of our disease, from my disease anyway. And that every time a an emotional uh, a, a triggering or a triggering event would occur, I would find myself running from it to act out. You know, especially when it became came to feeling abandoned and rejected. And so it's almost like the same thing. You know, the mind my mind did not want to go there. So Training the mind, you know, as it says in the big book, you know, we have to let God train our minds. And so it's really a process of learning to be still enough and, and be here in the now and, and, and feel whatever we can feel unconditionally. That means feeling as if it's going to be there uh, and that we don't wish it away. We don't try to push it away. We don't try to take medication to resolve it. Uh, we just feel it, you know, feel that sense of tightness in the chest that where I feel my fear is tightness in the gut, you know, and I, I felt it coming onto this call, you know, this fear of what are they going to think? What are they going to think about what I'm saying? Well, if I can breathe with that, you know, and that's the second part of it. That's the second tool is, you know, stilling the mind, but being with the breath, you know, so there's this physical mental integration that happens there. So there's this, this beginning of this pathway of awareness where we're, where we're feeling, uh, we're breathing and we're allowing our minds to direct our, direct our attention and our intention into being in the body. And so conscious connection with the breath is really essential for me in that. Just, you know, I, I spend most of my life breathless, you know, in a lot of ways. You know, I can, still, I can still see that when I work. You know, I just forget to breathe. And so if I can begin to, to, to uh, just step back and breathe, you know, there's just a, 
tremendous relaxation that comes from that tremendous calming effect just to feel breathe and then of course use prayer with that use some kind of conscious response you know it could be, uh, I love myself unconditionally. It could be, this moment matters. It could be, I integrate this charged emotion. I could, it could be, God, I offer myself to thee. Uh, and I, you know, I, there's this, uh, I started with this, but the serenity prayer, you know, is that movement of, of the physical to the mental, to the emotional, to the spiritual. And that's, that for me is the pathway of awareness, pathway of true uh, spiritual awakening. So it starts out with in all times of emotional turmoil, it doesn't say some, it says all, which, you know, we're not perfect at this program, but, you know, that's, that's what it says. We pause. So there's the physical, we pause. And in the stillness, we ask for peace. And then it says, then we say this serenity prayer. So you know, there's, there's this movement from the physical to the mental to that leads us into kind of this emotional, spiritual connection with our higher power. And so that's a, those are really essential tools uh, for me in beginning to unravel this, this emotional imprint, which is a really strong force in our lives. Right, or at least for me, you know, I and and because it's it's often stuffed into the unconscious, we can't see it, you know, until it flares up and it's anger towards people that push our buttons, and so, and that I think that maybe is why I've seen some so many of the relapses I've seen is because people come up against this this unconscious desperation, this unconscious pain and it's just i can't get past this you know and and i think it the, the mental mental working of steps uh can get us part of the way there working with a therapist can get part of part of the way there but you know it's really this this feeling realization of being present with god that leads us into the true spiritual and emotional upheaval. I mean, that was described, and there is a solution, right? One of the first people, one of the, the members uh, that uh, consulted with uh, Dr. Jung, right? Uh, he couldn't get sober, but Dr. Jung wrote back, you know, what, I'm, what I've been trying to get you to have is a spiritual transformation and an emotional transformation that can allow you to stay sober. So there, there has been this recognition of the emotional component of this, but I think it sometimes gets ignored in, in the busyness. You know, we try to do, 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 and we really need to be more being. I say that because that's my experience. Um, so uh, I, I uh, thank, thanks, Marcus. I'll wrap up. Um, so I would I would just like to share uh, something that uh, came to me uh, years back as I was looking at this desperation and I actually wrote a poem about it. I won't share the poem, but there was a a vision that came to me and it you know I was I was kind of feeling this sense of desperation in, inside and and what I heard was you know put your hands on the table 
And, and oh my God, underneath the table were so many children <laughs> squeezed by the sense of needing to perform and conform or perish. And that touched me and still touches me today as the essence of our problem. That we're, there are still injured children within us that need to be comforted and loved unconditionally so they can realize that they don't have to conform and perform to be, to be loved, to be loved unconditionally uh, by, by an eternal higher power. Um, and it, and it, it really is this, for me, it's, it is beginning to learn to love uh, that, that inner child that, that feels like it's been locked down and, uh, and not able to really be childlike. You know, I, I feel like I turned my back on my, my childlike self uh, when I was eight, six or seven. And now I'm turning to face that, you know, and these, this child is locked behind, has been locked behind closed doors. It's a danger. Do not come in here, you know? And so I begin to open the doors and welcome that child into my heart. And I'll end with this. I, I think the task for me is to begin to cross this chasm that I've created between my mind and my heart and welcome that child into the manger of my heart where all children receive homage of the wise and unconditional love. Thanks for letting me share. Always such a treat for me when I hear um, members who really embrace the 11th step with prayer and meditation. Uh, as Marcus said, I feel like I just had a 25 minute meditation and it's fantastic. Uh, I, I did, I have heard uh, before about uh, working with others, working with sponsees to start people in on uh, step 11 right away, start people, start sponsees in with meditation right away. What's your take on that? Yeah, thanks, brother. Thanks for that question, Dennis. Um, I, I agree with that. Uh, I try to try to start uh, people at least experimenting with meditation as soon as possible. Uh, this is a this is a disease of the thinking man, right? <laughs> we need to learn how to how to slow our minds down a little bit, uh, and I I. I, I People that try it are, are always struggle initially, as I did. You know, I struggled tremendously with meditation in the beginning. But I, I feel like it's it's essential. It was essential for me to do the meditation to open my mind enough that I could realize that one, I was out of time, and two, I needed to give myself to this simple program. You know, I think without the meditation, I would I could have convinced myself that I could somehow manage this. But I, I just realized, you know, that it gave me, it opened the door. You know, I think it was a, it opens the door to be willing to, to work the program. And, you know, I would just comment that there's this, you know, it says in the white book, you know, we shouldn't start step 11 until we've done step 10. But I, I disagree with that. You know, there's this, there's this fear, I guess, of 
of uh, facing things inside or having stuff comes up, come up that's really our dark side. And, you know, while that's true, there's a caution there that I think is important to realize as people, as we work with guys shoulder to shoulder and meditate with them, which I do, I try to do just on the phone or however, just, you know, breathe together. It's, it's important to allow them to kind of express and, and see uh, that dark side in a way that doesn't scare them away, you know? And so I think the support of the fellowship is so important for that, you know, and it connects an increased connection with a higher power that allows us to kind of face that dark side little by little, you know, God doesn't give us anything that we can't handle. It doesn't give us anything less as well. And so I think that, you know, your idea is, is good that we, we do step 11, but, you know, little by little, you know, one step at a time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Dennis. All right. We're going to Jimmy D. Hi, uh, Steve D. Uh, thank you very, very much. I, I echo what, what Dennis had to say. And also Marcus uh, put it in the chat. It was, you're a very centered man. I was watching you with your eyes closed and I, and, and no notes. And I'm thinking I'm walking into the cloud of unknowing with this guy. You know, that was, I'm sure you've read that book, the cloud of unknowing. I have read that. I love meditation. I, I, I'm, I love it. And I know the first rule of it is don't judge it, but I judge mine because I have, as Henry Nallen once wrote, my mind is a banana tree and it's full of monkeys grabbing bananas from here and there and everywhere. There was a, there was a a psychiatrist, an MD by the name of Gerald May. He wrote a book many years ago called addiction and grace. Yeah, I have that book. Remember that? And in it, he says that, Quieting the mind, the quiet mind, is very, very difficult for people with addictive disorders. And I would add trauma experiences. It's very difficult. Yeah. I sometimes kid with people and say, "I'm my name is Jimmy D. I'm ADD, uh, HS, uh, you know, ADD, ADHD, LSMFT, and all the others, every other you know acronym you could think of." But you know what? I think you're right. You know, it's compliance versus surrender. Do it. Just keep yeah. doing it, try yeah. it. And your share was very peace filled. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thanks. I, would, I, I, would, I might just add that, uh, you know, it is, it is the persistence, as you say, Jimmy. Uh, and I think it helps to, to have some, uh, some kind of way to, to integrate the the meditation with the breath you know i think that's been tremendously helpful for people i've worked with it's just i am here now in this breathing with that you know but you mentioned the trauma and i think that's a really important point to make is that you know what uh what's suggested more and more these days is that meditation can help us uh integrate this trauma and and actually uh, heal it you know and and it really is traumatic, traumatic, you know, that's the essence of this desperation. It's trauma that we've, we've experienced, you know, and it's, it has to be addressed and integrated if we want to really have long lasting emotional sobriety. Thanks, Steve. All right. I have a question and we'll go to you, David, um, that someone asked anonymously. Uh, they asked, how can I find good balance or knowledge between desperation and depression? How, how I guess the question is versed in a way, 
how do you distinguish them from each other? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, thanks for that. Um, well, you know, I'm not a, my sponsor warns me about, about this, you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a, and I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not qualified really to provide a, an answer that would be satisfactory from a, you know, a psychological standpoint. But what I, what I do know is that from experience, uh, that people with depression, uh, can can move past the depression by practicing the principles that I've talked about today and moving through the the trauma and trying to explore the trauma and, and bringing a, a spiritual uh, connection into that. And that's the real connection that, that I spoke about. Uh, to distinguish between the two, the desperation and the depression, I. I'm not sure if there is a distinction. You know, the desperation is a lack of hope. The, the depression is, you know, this lethargy, this feeling like, uh, you know, I just can't can't move forward. And, you know, both of them are kind of rooted in, in my mind in the same problem. And I think that's that's uh, kind of the essence of the message is that we have to get to the causes. We have to get to causes and conditions, you know, and it even says in the big book, even those with severe mental and emotional problems are able to recover if they have the capacity to be honest, you know, and it's the honesty, you know, it's being honest, fully honest about, uh, I think that's, that's really feeling is honest, you know, feeling is healing. Uh, we're, we're getting as, as, uh, Chuck C said, uh, rigorously honest within, you know, that's really kind of the essence of, of feeling, feeling what we feel. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. Thanks, Steve. And then I have a question, but I'll go after you, David. You're up. Okay. Thanks. Um, yeah. Uh, so first off, that was amazing. Thank you. Um, uh, first off, I, I've found uh, in this program, or at least when I first came in many years ago, um, that there was a real conservatism that where trauma wasn't really talked about much and not really acknowledged as part of the source. And in, in my own experience, um, trauma drives dissociation drives addiction. And that's, that's how it works for me. Um, I had this profound experience uh, in 2001. I was, I was uh, in residential treatment in fall of 2001, um, just, just after 9-11. Uh, um, and I was sitting on the couch. This is a, a place called Keystone in Philly. And um, I experienced the sensation of the profound wound of a little kid. Sorry. I apologize for that. Sorry. Um, I experienced the prof profound wound of the little kid and they didn't have the protections 
Um, and it was the first time that I felt the felt my armor lifted that addiction um, protected me against. And I started weeping. Um, I ended up uh, going back into, um, after several months, I ended up going back out there. And it's now almost 20 years later. And I don't have the capacity to go back into treatment and be contained in the way that I was. And I need to be able to access that part of me again. And I just wondered if you had any recommendations. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for sharing that, David. I, uh, you know, as, as you spoke, I could feel that, that same thing. And I feel, I feel like I could feel what you felt. And, and that, you know, I've had similar experiences and uh, trying to access and, and comfort that inner child. And it's, uh, it can become elusive because we, we tend to want to cover that up. And uh, there's such a, it's such a vulnerable place. And yet, and yet the tears are a gift, you know, the, the tears are shed by a child that somehow felt like he could never cry. And, uh, and so, um, you know, it is kind of what I've talked about is, is little by little being with that child, but there is a, a process uh, that many of us in SA have benefited from. It's contained in a book called The Presence Process. It's by an author that suffered from an incurable disease and, and, and found a way to, uh, to do exactly what you're talking about, begin to be with that, learn how to be with that child that's been forgotten for so many years and abandoned and, and sequestered and and so you asked for a recommendation. That, that book has been tremendously helpful for me. I've worked with it for about 10 years. And it's uh, by an author called Michael Brown. Michael uh, Brown? Michael Brown, The Presence Process. I think it, it, it uh, integrates really well with the 12-step program. It's really consistent with our program. It's not a, it's not a religious book. God isn't even mentioned in it. But, and it's not really a psychological book either. It's... It's a guy that found a way through exactly what you're talking about, you know, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, that, that would be, you know, if you want to, that would be helpful for you, I believe. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, David. Thanks, Steve. I have a question. Um, well, first off, thanks for your share, Steve. Uh, I really appreciate what you had to share. I, I particularly enjoyed what you talked about with the emotional imprinting because as a child growing up in a traumatic environment when i found my solution lust and acting out i feel like all the trauma and all the emotional growth stunted there yeah. and then my illness cemented it yeah. and in recovery all that comes pouring out right and um it could you know something my Al-Anon sponsor says, he says, you know, Marcus, my head lies to me all the time, but my body will never lie to me. Yeah. It never does. And a meditation, I find a lot of crying uh, in early sobriety coming out right. of it. Um, so in regards to feeling my feelings, 
what is your experience with outside programs? If I grew up in a household, like for me and my story, alcoholism, going to a program that specializes in these traumatic feelings and how to navigate through that. What is your experience with outside programs? Thanks. Well, it's been mixed. Uh, it's mixed because for a couple of reasons for me, I think, because there was an expectation that somehow I would be fixed, you know, and I, I went to people that had experience in that. And ultimately, we have to take responsibility for the quality of our own experience, right? And I really appreciated what you said about my body never lies to me. And I, I think that's that's really a key thing to keep in mind. The body holds a much greater truth than the mind can ever fathom. You know, we make up stories about why we have trauma and why we feel a certain way, but, you know, it's going into the feelings and not really expecting verbal answers that really brings us to a place of helping us heal from the trauma of the past. I use the word heal loosely because it's, you know, we really don't need to be fixed. We just need to integrate that energy that's stuck inside, you know, and so... What I feel is that, uh, you know, there are, there are people that can guide us through that. Um, but I, I felt like I, I outgrew the, those people sometimes because I just felt like I needed to get on my own path and, and do it for myself. You know, and the, and the presence process, which was recommended by a, a spiritual advisor I was seeing, you know, it's really the key for me in that, you know, because it, it directs us, you know, this isn't, this isn't something anybody can do for us. You know, we have to do it for ourselves. And, and so um, realizing that so much of what we experienced is really, we really didn't have the, the wherewithal to understand it at a, at a verbal level or mental level when we experience it. So it's stuck in the, it's stuck in our tissues, you know, and it's kind of needs to be felt rather than explained or, you know, we can't talk or, or think our way through it. So I feel like, uh, you know, if there are people that can sit with us and walk shoulder to shoulder with us in it, you know, that are doing the same journey, that's been the most helpful thing for me. You know, we have, had a number of people here in Sacramento that have kind of walked through this, this process together. And I think just hearing each other's stories and experience has been really helpful, you know, in that regard, that's probably been the most helpful thing that for me anyway, rather than going to somebody else that maybe can, can help with that. Uh, but, you know, everybody's got their own path. Uh, but that, that, that's been my experience. Thanks, Steve. And Urban, we got time for Urban's question and maybe one more after that. Somebody wants to come up with one. Urban, go ahead, brother. Thanks, sir. Uh, Marcus, uh, Steve, thanks for your, your share. Um, boy, I really identify with it because uh, I've been a dry drunk for many, many years in the program. And recently, someone spoke about hitting a sober bottom. And, and that really made sense to me, you know. Um, yeah. And, and, and listening to what you were saying, Steve, um, um, I, I joined this other fellowship called Adult Children of Alcoholics. And um, 
I tell you, I found it so difficult to to listen to uh, the laundry list in 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 ACA. You know, it just like triggered time bombs in me. You know, um, and I've I've not been willing to go through the twelve steps in the ACA process. And I I it sounds like from what you are saying, if I just keep working a deeper process in the fellowship I'm in. And thanks to the book recommendation, uh, that if I just keep committed to working a deeper program in this one fellowship, uh, I could come to the same place of the ACA fellowship. Like you said, it's an individual process, I guess. But uh, yeah, just your comments on that. Thanks, Pass. Yeah, thank you, brother. That's a, that's a good comment. I can, I, I've gone through the ACA workbook to us to a small degree and I, I kind of found it uh, a little too mental for me uh, but I agree with what you're saying I think that you know our our literature uh, points us in this direction you know and I think this is why I like the, the a big book so much because there if you really if I really listen to it you know in a, in a heartfelt way I hear the desperation and I hear the, at a feeling level, how people made it through that desperation. I mean, listen, one story that comes to mind in particular is the one in chapter four, you know, where the guy's, the guy's locked up, right? I mean, and he, and he says, uh, um, you know, if there is a God, what the hell has he done for me? You know, and, and it's just, and it's almost like you can see that, that pathway of awareness, you know, that it, in saying that, his mind, you know, kind of question, there's a kind of a questioning there, you know, what the hell has he ever done for me? And then out of the silence comes this, who are you to say there is no God? You know, and he falls to his knees, falls to his knees and feels this spiritual outpouring, you know, and we've all felt that, you know, we've all felt that sense of awe and wonder that it, that's talked about in the big book, you know, and I feel like our literature points us in that direction. And I, and I agree with what you're saying, that if we deepen our, our program uh, and, and add the feeling aspect to it, we can, we can progress along this path of uh, healing the, the inner trauma. So yeah, I, would, I would agree with what you're saying. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Thanks for the question, Urban Arash. And then I think we'll have time for Wendy. We'll keep it short. Thanks. Is, is it the AA meeting or is it SA meeting? This is an SA, SA marathon meeting. All right. That's good. Yeah. Just, yeah. I, I had two questions. I'm looking for a solution. So the, the problem I had, which is really high on, on self, is what? One of them is, honestly, I have a loads of emotional scene in my head. So uh, it is a really huge amount of emotional fantasy I have to deal with every day, every day. And, and I've been in a program for 20 months, and I have now 19 days sobriety. So all my, all my relapse is end up like, I've been 
totally down and I had a loser emotional fancy and that's why it caused me relapse. And another reason caused me relapse because I've been uh, I had a deeply unvalued feeling about myself inside me and that's maybe not showing outside but really I have a really really deep unvaluable or like uselessness something like this inside me and I just try to sort it out but I don't know how and I have this feel all the time with me and it caused me on my on my work area, on my relationships with the family, with it, with, with it everywhere, you know, everywhere it caused me a low problem. Honestly, I'm looking for a solution I, and I would like to hear about it more and ask you this just to, to show me my way. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. You, you cut out. Oh, there he goes. Go ahead, Steve. Well, I would just, yeah, I can relate to what you're saying. And it's those emotional triggers that you talk about that really, you know, that they touch that part of us inside that really drive us to act out and until we begin to get some, get some freedom from that, uh, the cycle repeats itself. And then we feel that sort of sense of uselessness and self-pity and, you know, that, uh, you know, I felt that so much in, in early sobriety and before. Uh, but I feel like one thing that helps is, of course, having a sponsor. But a sponsor you can kind of walk through these experiences with after they happen. You know, it helps to kind of go back and begin to feel our way. You know, what, hap- what did it feel like when this and this happened? You know, what did you feel in the body? Uh, where did you, you know, what did that, that desperation, where, what did that desperation feel like in the body? You know, of course, working the steps is essential. You know, we have to work the steps to kind of really get down to causes and conditions, but working the steps again with this, this feeling uh, aspect to it, you know, we can walk through the, the first step, you know, I've done this with sponsees, you know, what did it, what did it feel like? What did, what the, what did it feel like leading up to that, that acting out? Because there's this crescendo, right? We get touched inside, you know, and the lust takes over because we don't want to face those feelings. I'm saying we, but it's my experience. Uh, and, it, and it kind of goes up like a wave, you know, and, and at some point in that wave coming up, we have no, we, lo- we lose control. And then we act out and then we crash, you know, on the beach of uh, the beach of self-loathing, I call it. Uh, so I, I, especially in early sobriety, we need to get a handle on what's, what those triggers are and begin to feel our way through them. But there may be a need for drying out. You know, there may be a need for just separation from those emotional triggers for a while so we can get some, get some, uh, a little bit of distance from all that that's causing the acting out. You know, that can make a, make a, big difference for, for folks, you know? So I know I was given that gift in early sobriety, you know, <laughs> being fired from a job, you know, that was it. I got, I got to work at home and <laughs> start my own business, but it gave me time to away from the emotional, the drama of work. So those are some thoughts that come to mind. 
I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.